that test and that she might be cancer-free as she moves forward. Um, and finally, Lord, open our eyes that we might once again see how you have a good plan for us. Now that plan is fulfilled in your servant Christ. Amen. Isaiah 46. So we're at the section right now where we're reviewing uh, chapter 46. Just to bring us up to speed where we left off last time, we talked uh, last time about how the Lord was knocking down the gods of Babylon. The next chapter will be the the people of Babylon themselves and their, their pride. And then the next chapter will be the proud Israelites. So we got a section of three chapters here where he's tearing down those who oppose him. And we talked about the, the requirements of false gods are that you have to carry them, that they're a burden, whereas God carries us, his people who trust in him. So in the study guide on page 32, explain this statement. Our mother's carried, and the word should be us, carried us when we were in the womb, but God has carried us from the womb. Well, God, God knew us before we were in the womb. Right, and we'll see that coming up here as he talks about before you were born. I knew you. I, knew you, I made my plans. I strengthened you. I sustained you. Since your birth, I've upheld you. Yeah. And then I sent my son to save you. Right. In order to carry us, we're going to see on chapter 53 especially, he carried our diseases, he carried our wounds, the servant of the Lord. So God is literally in the flesh going to carry us as he takes our sins upon himself. So God has carried us every moment, even in the womb, of course, but every moment, every breath is sustained by him. And he's going to carry us into eternity. Just that's a thought that Isaiah is going to get on to when he gives a picture of the church later on in his prophecies. Who are the two groups addressed in chapter 46? And what are the two different messages to each of those groups? So scan through once again what we read last week. What are the two different groups and the two different messages to them? Babylon. Yep, so you got the gods of Babylon. And Jake is People Israel. And what are the two different messages? He allowed Babylon to take over Israel, but they were still under his care and protection. Mm -hmm. If we're going to target the specific audience he's hitting in Israel here, would you say it would be the faithful people of Israel or the, the stubborn people of Israel? Stubborn. Yeah. So he has to tell them, remember it, take it to heart, you rebels, verse 8. Or when you look at verse 12, listen to me, you stubborn-hearted, you who are now far from my righteousness. So for both groups, it's a word of warning, isn't it? There, you're right, there is gospel. God is telling them, you know, I, I carried you. But that's in the context of, aren't you listening to me? Aren't you paying attention, listening to my warning? Uh, assess your own life and what potentially might become an idol in your life as it demands your time and wealth. We talked about idols are a burden. So as you look at your life, what are some things that could potentially demand your time and wealth and be, be an idol that is a burden? My boat. So your boat. 
You literally have to take that boat and drag it along, don't you? And then push it in the water. <laughs> yeah, that, that's what we talked about. Some things that can become idols are our, our leisure activities, our hobbies, sports. Money. They can be a burden. Money, Money itself can be even... It can be a burden. It's not just, we talk about, you know, the boat takes money and it becomes a burden because you've got to work to pay off the things or whatever, but money itself can become a burden and that you're just making that the end goal, right? And people spend their life chasing after it. Fame and fortune. Right. So the, if the idol is fame and fortune... Self. You know, I was, I was just listening to a podcast about, um, I forgot what it was now, some celebrity, and it was, the celebrity's life was awful. And basically they were saying, why would you want that kind of a life? To be a millionaire, when it costs you this much to get to that point, you have to trade your life away, your childhood and everything. So yeah, they, they all can be burdens. So my, my challenge is, whatever it might be for your life, you know, maybe most of us aren't struggling with fame and fortune or, or what it might be, but what is taking place sometimes of loving the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul and mind? And do you see how it becomes a burden in your life? Open idolatry is often costly. So we were just talking about secret idolatry. Idols and false gods demand payment and service from those who worship them. How does even secret idolatry become the people? Well, we, we just kind of discussed that, right? Whatever you crave, whatever you slaved after, never really satisfies. Let's go to the next one, actually. Unless someone have a comment there? I was just going to say, we all have a conscience, and that conscience tells us we're getting carried away. Right. Yeah, we recognize you're guilty, and you're not satisfied with peace from without God, and it won't satisfy your cravings. Uh, in this chapter, the Lord says he has carried his people since their birth and will continue to carry them even in old age. Anyone want to care to explain how has he done this for you and how will he continue to do it for you? We know he did it for Israel as a nation and he did it for the individual Israelites that were reading this in Isaiah's time. What about us? Well, he sent Paul to the Gentiles. Okay, he's carried us by bringing his gospel he sent out the gospel to the world, so we are receiving that gospel and we're carried along with the strength he provides. So all of us at one point receive that power of the gospel. Well, in studying God's word, it just, even in our, it's like we tell our young people, it doesn't end at confirmation. It's not a graduation. It's a right. continual process throughout your whole life. <clears throat> that's, a, that's a good mindset because if we're saying God strengthens me and that I'm strong enough to, you know, be physically strong, we're missing the point, right? He strengthens us through the gospel. That's what confirmation really is. Uh, he strengthens us as he continues to feed us with the word and sacrament. And we don't retire from God when we retire from work. You know, it's, keep going. Right, that's why he says, even to your old age, it's not like, well, I'm strong enough to make it the rest of my life spiritually. <clears throat> even to our old age, we need to be fed the gospel, be strengthened by the Spirit and His Word. And another way we could put this too is, also physically, hasn't God blessed you throughout your life and will continue to work all things to your good, uh, to the point where He will carry you safely home. All this in grace. Um, let's jump forward now. I've referenced briefly Isaiah 53. Let's jump there, Isaiah 53, verses 4 to 5. Let's see what the Holy One of Israel had to carry so he could carry his people. 
It's a motif that comes up again in Isaiah's prophecy. Someone want to read verses 4 and 5 of chapter 53? Judy? Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. Thanks. Yeah, your, so, your uh, translation there says he carried our suffering. Mine, mine reads, he bore our suffering, but picture Jesus, right, as fulfilling these words, taking upon himself uh, all of our diseases, our ills, our, our curse, and being punished in our place. Uh, actually, actually, if you look in the Hebrew, <clears throat> even though the, the Bible might use a different translation from Isaiah 46, where he says, I've carried you and I will carry you. When you look at Isaiah 53, verse 4, it's the same Hebrew word there for carry. So we have Nasa, God saying, I will carry you. And then there's the prophecy. He carried our sins, our sorrows. Whether it gets conveyed in translation or not, it's the same word there. Other thoughts on chapter 46? I'm going to jump into 47. All right, so we had the judgment against the proud idols of Babylon. And also rebuke for the stubborn Israelites who don't see that. If you turn to those idols, it's a burden. Now in chapter 47, God's judgment, the Lord's judgment against proud Babylon. Biblical prophecy often cites cities as female characters. They refer to the people, of course, who lived in the nation of that city and the beliefs they held. Metaphorically, the cities do all the same things people do. We saw this at the start of our Isaiah 2 study, namely, speak to the heart of Jerusalem. Obviously, that's not you know, talking to the city, but all the inhabitants. Isaiah's prophecy will continue to employ this technique. His prophecies will close with a picture of Jerusalem as a birthing and nursing mother. This poetic shorthand can still be found today when we say things like, Washington is setting aid, etc. This entire chapter speaks about the Neo-Babylonian Empire, which was from 626 to 539. Um, this was actually going to be after Isaiah's time, but he's speaking of an empire that would arise after, not too long after his time. Yet it's intended to present a far bigger picture. So let's read verses 1 to 3 of chapter 47. Go down, sit in the dust, virgin daughter Babylon. Sit on the ground without a throne, queen city of the Babylonians. No more will you be called tender or delicate. Take millstones and grind flour. Take off your veil. Lift up your skirts, bare your legs, and wade through the streams. Your nakedness will be exposed and your shame uncovered. I will take vengeance. I will spare no one. So describe the initial depiction here of daughter of Babylon. Sounds like she's in trouble. Right. So she's going to face some bad circumstances here. My Bible says pampered and spoiled. Yeah, so she's you know, described as delicate, tender, pamper, and spoiled would probably be another way to put that. Someone who's got the easy life, it sounds like she's got a veil, so she's like getting ready to celebrate a wedding. Yeah, the way it calls her virgin Babylon, it's like she's new. Um, Babylon 
the, the historians even call this the Neo-Babylonian Empire. Babylon had existed for some time, but when uh, Nebuchadnezzar II, you know, and his father, they came on the scene, suddenly the empire just expanded like it was a whole new era. And so people are looking at Babylon like, wow, look at this grand new empire that took scene. So that, that's why I believe Isaiah could use that depiction. Like she's a young maiden, and yet, as we mentioned, this pampered young maiden who looks like she's got the top of the world is suddenly going to tumble. Scan through the rest of this chapter to find some additional traits about the daughter of Babylon. What are additional traits do we see as we scan through the chapter? Okay, so she'll be hard-pressed and put to work in a shameful way. Yeah, the whole idea of take millstones and grind flour, that's a servant girl's work, or that's the lower class where they're supposed to sit there and grind the flour, or they're supposed to turn the mill. But pampered Babylon's going to have to be that. What else do you see as it describes the daughter of Babylon? Just keep looking ahead in the chapter. Yep, so disgraced. Uh, she puts forward all these grand cities and walls and fortresses, but she's going to be torn down and disgraced. And it says, I will spare no one. Right. So there you kind of see this metaphor coming alive that obviously it's not just talking about a single person. The city of Babylon represents all the inhabitants of that city, especially, but also anyone in the empire that trusts in, in the power of the Babylonians. Notice in verse 5, she's called the queen of kingdoms. So she lords it over all these other kingdoms and cities. She showed them no mercy and made their yoke very heavy. Yeah, so she was pretty harsh. When she was a queen, she wasn't a very good queen for other, over those other cities. She gave them a hard time. And then what was her attitude when you look at verse 7? It was going to last. Yeah, I'm... My, just like you know, a young person might think today, I'm always going to be forever immortally young and strong and my life will be great. Nope. Didn't reflect that that, that doesn't last. All right, so the, the daughter of Babylon has a lot of traits that probably we wouldn't say are admirable. Do you see any parallels to other proud and affluent societies in history? Isn't this kind of a parallel to almost every affluent society in history? They rise to power. They treat other nations around them harshly. They think they're going to be in power forever. British. Yep. All the, all the different empires across the world. You can even go backwards in history and look at the Assyrians before the Babylonians. They, too, acted like they were you know, going to forever be queen of the hill. The Babylonian Empire was basically absorbed by the Assyrians. But when Nebuchadnezzar built this empire, it dominated for an entire century. And really, it was uh, marked by what we look at as today as modern Iraq. Roughly, it was the size of New Jersey, uh, but it, it expanded from that small territory to take over pretty much the known world. All the way from, you could say, from India, even up into the regions of Northern Europe. Just if someone had control in the Mediterranean at that time and all the surrounding regions of Iraq and the Euphrates River, it, it extended just vast. But it's clear. Notice the Lord is going to cause a downfall. 
and it's going to be for the sake of his people. Judgment would come from God. I look at verse 4. Our Redeemer, the Lord Almighty is his name, is the Holy One of Israel. What are these titles? Is, all of a sudden Isaiah just kind of stops. He's not talking to Babylon. He's, he's praising God all of a sudden, really. What does this burst of praise tell us about our God? He's the only God. <laughs> sure. He's mentioned that he's the only God. What do we see here in particular? He's our Redeemer. Yeah, a Redeemer. So someone who rescues people saves them by ransoming them or paying a price for them. So I guess part of the picture could be someone being bought back from captivity, from slavery. If the, the people of Israel were captive to Babylon, God says, I'm going to make you my own. I'm going to buy you back from captivity. The Lord Almighty. So he's the one that's going to do this to Babylon. He's powerful. And the Holy One. He's without fault and flaw. Our perfect God. Arrogant Babylon is going to encounter the Lord. And, you know, these titles all fit well for Christ. Christ is our Redeemer. Uh, Christ shows that he is the all-powerful one, and Christ is the Holy One who is of Israel. He will walk, live, die among his people as their Redeemer. Other thoughts, questions up to verse 4. We're going to take next a whole section of verse 5 through 8. So who wants to read that, verse 5 through 8? Okay. Daughter of Chaldea, sit in silence and go into darkness, for you will no longer be called mistress of kingdoms. I was angry with my people. I profaned my possession, and I handed them over to you. You showed them no mercy. You made, them, you made their yoke very heavy on the elderly. You said, I will be the queen forever. You did not take these things to heart or think about their outcome. So now, hear this mother of luxury who sits securely, who says to herself, I am, and there is no one else. I will never be a widow or know the loss of children. Thanks. Yeah, your translation reads, daughter of Chaldea. Mine just went out and kind of interpreted it more as Babylonians, but in Isaiah's time, we're, we're talking now about 700 BC, that's really what this region was known as, as Chaldea. And so the, the Babylonians and their, their city of Babylonia came out of that area. So it's really a small territory in Isaiah's time, but they'd be known as an empire only a short century later. So daughter of Chaldea, or queen of the kingdoms here, the city of Babylonians. All right, so as you look at this, how would you describe Babylon, Babylon's attitude, or the daughter of Babylon, I suppose? How would you describe its attitude during its rise to power? Very cocky, thinking they were the best. Right, pretty cocky, arrogant. Note, why did God allow her to attain such power and position? He kind of mentions here why he allows this very haughty city to take hold and, and become so great. Well, he was angry with his people, so he ends from over. Yeah, that verse 6 there, it's pretty direct, isn't it? So, you queen of kingdoms, don't you realize I was angry with my people, and so I gave them into your hand. God allowed Babylon to attain power so they could overthrow Israel. And that... That's something Babylon never should have 
forgotten or, or, or should have taken to heart, God is saying. And the people of Israel are being told they had power so they could crush you, Israel. So God working on the stage of history. He's basically using Babylon like a tool, right? To accomplish his purpose. And he's telling Babylon that. And God's tool, Babylon, got kind of proud because God was using it as a tool merely. What are some of the temptations that we might have when we attain positions of prestige and power? Lord and people. Right? That's, who gave it to us. Right. So we might forget the Lord our God who's using us to serve him. That's why we might have power, so we can use it to God's glory and accomplish his purposes, not just our own. Um, think about Joseph. He knew he could get revenge on his brothers when they were bowing down before him. There he is. He's the second in command in Egypt. And now he can finally get revenge on his brothers. But instead he says, the Lord you know, did all this to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So, yeah, they needed him. And that's why Joseph was in power. Joseph very easily could have said, I'm in power to get revenge. But he saw the bigger picture. I'm in power to serve God's purpose. Uh, think about Esther. She, was, she came to power, and even though the word God isn't there, she's told, you know, who knows, maybe you're in power now for such a time as this. And, you know, the book of Esther is a good picture of how God works in history to accomplish his purpose and why people are given the positions they're given, not so they can live in selfish luxury, but so they can use that position and acknowledge the Lord. Wouldn't that be great? Yeah. If everyone who's given power and prestige would, instead of being you know, arrogant with it, would say, what am I supposed to do with this? What does God intend? Yep. So don't we face that same temptation, you know, especially I think verses 7 and 8, to not consider these things and reflect on what might happen if we think that we'll, we'll hold that position forever. Or we're simply lounging in our security, saying, there's none beside me. I will never be a widow, never suffer loss. How about we read verses 9 through 11? So God now pronounces against Babylon's proud attitude the result of what will happen to Babylon now. Verse 9, But of these will overtake you in a moment on a single day, loss of children and widowhood. They will come upon you in full measure, in spite of your many sorceries and all your potent spells, you have trusted in your wickedness and have said, no one sees me, meaning there's no judge. Your wisdom and knowledge misled you when you say to yourself, I am, and there is none beside me. Disaster will come upon you, and you will not know how to conjure it away. A calamity will fall upon you that you cannot ward off with a ransom. A catastrophe you cannot foresee will suddenly come upon you. So Babylon would rise to power pretty quickly, as I mentioned, in 626 BC. So this is about 100 years after Isaiah's time. And God fulfilled this prophecy with the downfall of Babylon in 539 BC. So actually, when you look at the time frame, it's less than 100 years. Less really than three generations, and Babylon would quickly crumble. 
So we know the height of Nebuchadnezzar as he builds you know, that, that plane that everybody's supposed to bow down and worship the statue. Nebuchadnezzar with the Hanging Gardens and the, the magnificence of his kingdom. And then you've got his son and then his, what is his grandson, Belshazzar. And he's, Belshazzar is partying at night and suddenly the, the Medes and Persians just take over the city. The handwriting on the wall. Yeah. What does that sudden downfall of a dominating world power impress on us? God is in control. Yeah. You know, picture, you know, our nation has been around since basically 1776. So what, what anniversary are we approaching now? 248. 248, is that right? So that's quite a long time compared to Babylon. But if Babylon, which was so great, can fall in such a short time, how long should we expect our power to be there? When I was at the symposium, I can't remember the, the window someone said, but he was a, a historian at one of our, our colleges, I think at Martin Luther College it was actually, and he said that no nation in all of history has lasted more, I think it was 200 years, he said, 200 years without either a major overhaul and revolution or a downfall. Even, even though the Roman Empire was around for, what, 800, 900 years, every 200 years there was a major revolution and the people in power lost power and there was a major overhaul. So he's basically saying, when you look at history, we're about due for a major overhaul or a loss of power according to the pattern that we've seen in every civilization that we've known. I can't remember what the window was, maybe it was 250 years, but you can only last so long. And God says, okay, your pride, your wisdom misleads you. Uh, it won't last. Well, you know, when you think of uh, two cults, claim to be Christian, but they're cults, the Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, you know, they're infallible. Well, and the Pope, too. They're infallible. You know, they set themselves equal with or above God. And here in verse 8 and in verse 10, God told Moses, tell him, I am sent you. He calls himself the I am. Uh -huh. And here it says, I am, and there's none besides me. They say that in 8 and 10. Right, so that the arrogant set claim. set themselves up as a God. You're right, verse 10, that, that should be a striking, very arrogant claim well, to say, eight, I am. Eight two. I am and there's none besides me. Oh, yeah. Ten. Yep. Good catch that you got, that arrogant claim is done twice by Babylon saying, I am, there's none beside me. And that's what God calls himself, I am. Yeah, so really tr thinking that you're the end all, the, the almighty yourself. And it's really in mockery of the true God when you get that proud. And I think that's where, that's where America is at. You know, we are the end all, yeah. And obviously we pray for our nation. We pray that God would preserve peace, protect us, keep us safe. But we also pray that God would keep us humble and allow us to still have his gospel, um, not to cast that aside. Yeah, God can turn around history in a single day. And that's what he ended up doing for Babylon. And that should definitely impress how fast the tides can turn. Very sudden. Uh, verses 10 through 15. I know we read um, 
10 and 11, but they all tie together. So I'm going to read verses 10 through 15 to hear the, the taunt against the things the daughter of Babylon would look to for maintaining her power. So see if we can come up with a, a list of at least three of them. So three things that we're going to see here where Babylon looked to for power. 10. You've trusted in your wickedness. You've said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and knowledge mislead you when you say to yourself, I am, there's none beside me. Disaster will come on you and you will not know how to conjure it away. A calamity will fall upon you that you cannot ward off with a ransom, meaning with wealth. A catastrophe you cannot foresee will suddenly come on you. Keep on then with your magic spells and your many sorceries which you have labored at since childhood. Perhaps you will succeed. Perhaps you will cause terror. Note the sarcasm there. All the counsel you have received has only worn you out. Let your astrologers come forward. Those stargazers who make predictions month by month. Let them save you from what is coming on you. Surely they are like stubble. The fire will burn them up. They cannot even save themselves from the power of the flame. These are not coals for warmth. This is not a fire to sit by. That is all they are to you. These you have dealt with and labored with since childhood. All of them go in their error. There is not one that can save you. So you notice the sarcasm, you notice the taunting in that section there as God speaks of the things that Babylon was trusting in. Well, just like he was toward those idols that people made. Right. Let him speak. So he, he kind of identifies what could be called some of the idols, but really... What are some, let's see if we can list at least three of them, some of the things that Babylon was looking to for power and strength. Wisdom and knowledge? Yeah, wisdom and knowledge. So it was a nation that, that claimed to have such insight and wisdom. Much like our evolutionists today. Okay, so we can immediately appropriate that, take hold of it, and see how we, we find that today a nation or people that takes pride in its wisdom or knowledge. And God says, will that save you? And when God comes to judge. What else was Babylon taking pride in for its strength and power? Sorcery. Yeah, sorcery. Uh, everything talking about conjuring, foretelling the future. Um, superstition, really, right? Magic charms. So that too, God says, that will fail you. You do see that today where people do have superstitious ideas, right? And they'll, they'll try to um, look to the stars for information. Uh, another one I had was the, the focus on astrologers and fortune-telling, predictions. They make predictions month by month. So claiming to have what only God truly has, true foresight and foreknowledge of what is to come, and their foresight would fail them, that they wouldn't see their downfall. Uh, their astrologers and fortune tellers would fail them. Couldn't even help themselves. And note how fitting it is that God would emphasize his ability to foretell the future in a context of a society like Babylon, where they had people delving into fortune telling and prophecy and astrology. So the Babylonians are like, oh yeah, we know what's coming, we know the future. And God emphasizes through Isaiah, you think you know the future? Let me tell you what's coming. I alone could foretell the future. 
So much for your fortune tellers. So much for your predictions of what is to come, Babylon. It actually would have been a huge smack in the face that God foretold the sudden turnaround, and they didn't, and they couldn't. Verse 15 closes with, um, I'm sorry, not verse 15. Oh, yeah. Verse 15 closes with, labored at, with childhood. Someone have a different translation other than that? Those you've dealt with and labored. Done business with since childhood? Those you've done business with since childhood. Any other translations? Trafficked. Trafficked? Mm -hmm. Labored with and trafficked. Okay, interesting. Trafficked. That kind of has a connotation today of like mm -hmm. done business in like the streets in a illicit kind of way. Yeah. Yeah, because it was done at night. So the EHV reads, those who have worn you out. I'm not reading the HV here, I got the NIV, but that's, that's what the EHV has. Those you've worn out, the NIV has. Those you've dealt with and labored. So how does the person who turns to things such as immorality, because actually that was one of the sources of strength too, notice that. It says there, um, you trusted in your wickedness, verse 10. So in other words, living an immoral life, you say, no one will judge me. I'm free to do whatever I want. So... Those who turn to immorality, witchcraft, superstition, idol worship, how do they become worn out by them? From the rest you get results from. Yeah, they demand, those things demand everything, but they can never give you the results you want. Uh, if you're turning to witchcraft, superstition, idol worship, wickedness, it's not going to deliver. So the, the, the EHV actually captures... All those translations are trying to capture this idea that you're laboring, you're working, uh, that there's a business transaction, yes, but it's a costly, time-consuming one. And the EHV, I think, is the, mo the more literal translation here. They've worn you out. So they've worn you out and that not only they cost something, but they don't deliver. My Bible says those who have wearied you and have traded with you from your youth each wanders on his own way. No one can save you. Right, so that captures those who have wearied you and you've traded with. Mm -hmm. So this is not a business deal that the Babylonians were benefiting from in any way, uh, working with their sorcerers and superstition <coughs> and their astrologers. Okay, I think we've got time to maybe review this section. So chapter 47, let's see if we can review it. Chapters 46, 47, and 48 all deal with God's judgment on those who turn against him, both unbelievers and the rebellious believing descendants of Israel. But what words of comfort are found in chapter 47? Do we find any words of comfort? Even though this is a, the middle of a three-chapter section of judgment. We're redeemed. Okay, so we do have the title, Our Redeemer. That's a comforting title there. Definitely good to find that and, and take hold of that. Other comforting things, obviously the other titles in that verse, right? So you're looking at verse 4 in particular. So he's our Redeemer. He's Almighty. He is the Holy One. Any other comforting things we find in this chapter? In 46, I am He, I am He who will sustain you. In 46? Mm -hmm. Yeah, if we're going to turn back a chapter, we'll find even there. Sorry. No, that's good, though. Within context, it's important in all these chapters to find. There is judgment, but notice mixed in chapter 46, chapter 47, 
there's hope and there's comfort for those who trust in the Lord. So he is, he's really calling on people to turn away from the things he's going to judge them for. He desires everyone be saved. He wants the world to listen and to take to heart. You know, why, why is this going out to Babylon even? That Babylon should be able to see this prophecy because he wants them to know and believe and have life. How about we take a look um, at Revelation, we'll wait for time, we got 10 minutes, right? Let's take a look at Revelation 18. And we see how Babylon is used to refer to all the enemies of God and foretell their coming destruction. So Revelation 18. See if we can find some parallels here to, to Isaiah 47. So Revelation, obviously Babylon is no longer around. And we know Revelation is a vision. So when we start reading in Revelation that he sees Babylon the Great, it's not like he's delving back into, you know, he's not going 600 years back in history, 700 years back in history. Rather, this is a picture, just as the, the city Babylon in Isaiah's time represents the entire nation. Here, Babylon is a, a metaphor for all of the enemies of God. Do you see any parallels between what we read in Revelation 18? Verse 2. In my Bible it says, Babylon and great has fallen. She has become a home for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, and a haunt for every unclean bird, and a haunt for every unclean and despicable beast. Yeah, that's quite the word, a, a dwelling for demons and a haunt. You know, we, we, we're approaching how we know, but this is the work of the devil. This is all of God's enemies gather and congregate in what, what is called here Babylon the Great. Really just Babylon the Great is a picture for where is the devil operating in this world? Where is there witchcraft and sorcery and idolatry and wickedness? And where there is, there's a spiritual battle going on and the devil has a foothold. Notice it says in verse 3, All the nations have drunk the wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her. So anybody that exchanges with these demonic Powers, all nations are underneath this wicked Babylon. That's where the trafficking comes in. Yeah. The merchants from the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. So she's <clears throat> carrying out her commerce, but also sharing her idolatry, wickedness, superstition. So as you look at this, though, and you find more parallels, find the main point of the chapter. It's judgment and who's going to come out ahead in the end. And in verse 7, Pastor, it says, I sit as a queen, I'm not a widow, and I will never see grief. Yeah. And notice, your, if your Bible has footnotes, it probably referenced Isaiah 47 there, didn't it? Do you see that? Mine has a footnote. That's a direct quote of Isaiah 47. I sit as queen, not a widow, I will never grieve. So this picture in Revelation builds off of what we read in Isaiah 47. That's why uh, Revelation is a good book of the Bible, but you really want to understand the rest of the Bible before you can really understand the pictures that are being brought out. So when we start reading in Revelation of this city Babylon, it should recall to mind what was Babylon like. It was idolatrous, wicked, superstitious, an enemy of God, and did not acknowledge God. But as you look at this, Jesus wins. 
Fallen is Babylon the Great. Notice both are immediate or, or quick judgments. God's enemies will lose, and it will happen quickly when judgment comes. Uh, note when John wrote this, so when John wrote Revelation, it was about 90 AD when Rome was in power, not Babylon. This is 600 years after Babylon. Uh, Rome was actually being referenced as like Babylon the Great in the New Testament era. And it's clear that John has far more than godless Rome in the picture. It's a metaphor for every godless nation where the devil does his work. Any other parallels that you note between Isaiah 47 and, and John's picture? Okay. Just thought it'd be good to, to kind of compare those two because it helps you understand Revelation 18 a little bit better. And Revelation 18 also maybe helps us understand what God's getting at in Isaiah 47. The main point, God wins, his judgment happens, and when it happens, it will come so quickly, the enemies of God won't see it coming. Well, it's usually referenced as a twinkling of the eye, thief in the night, so unexpected. I wanted to give a, a reading that will contrast that strong contrast between the final condition of the proud woman Babylon, daughter of Babylon, and the forgiven and redeemed woman. Remember, we opened up with her in chapter 40. Jerusalem, speak to Jerusalem. Let's see if we can contrast that. So look at Isaiah 54, 5, Isaiah 61, 10, and Isaiah 62, 5. And we're going to contrast the final outcome we just read for Babylon with the final outcome for Jerusalem. The redeemed woman. Someone have Isaiah 54, 5? Your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth. Yeah, Babylon said, I'll never be a widow and I'll never be childless and ends up falling and losing everything. And Jerusalem is told, your maker is your husband. So Jerusalem is betrothed, closely connected to God, not abandoned or alone. How about Isaiah 61.10? I rejoice greatly in the Lord. I exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation and wrapped me in a robe of righteousness. As a groom wears a turban and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. So Babylon will have her nakedness exposed, her veil taken away, and she'll be uncovered. What's going to happen to Jerusalem? Her disgrace is taken away. She's clothed with garments of salvation, adorned as a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest, as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Jerusalem has God's clothing. In other words, God's honor and esteem and is not facing any shame. Isaiah 62, 5, that reads, As a young man marries a young woman, so will your builder marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. Just a, a neat picture that God is going to betroth himself to his church, Jerusalem, his people, and will rejoice over them. And then finally, here's a neat picture that the scriptures close with. It's a picture of Jerusalem as a bride. Revelation 21. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, 
coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. There'll be a, a new Jerusalem. You know, some people get tied up in all the things that are happening today and say, we gotta, we gotta defend Jerusalem. God's not concerned with the physical city. That was merely, just as Babylon was a picture, that's a picture of what is to come. Just as our bodies will be made new on the last day, this is the, the new Jerusalem, the city of God, his people, prepared as a beautiful bride dressed for her husband. That's how scripture closes, not with the mere physical city of Jerusalem being lifted up and restored and rebuilt. That's, that's too small of a salvation. What God has planned for us is this, that, that heavenly Jerusalem and the picture of it being like a bride that's adorned and blessed. So big comparison and contrast, isn't it, between the godless daughter of Babylon and the daughter of Jerusalem. I want you to use that picture, the picture of the church, that's the woman and her husband Christ that we talked about. How would you use that to comfort a Christian who's ashamed of their sin? Right. To those who trust in him, that, that sin is forgiven. You, you will not be put to shame. You're not going to have to march in the disgrace of your sin and judgment. But he's going to adorn you with a righteous robe, with new garments. And he's not going to bring judgment on you as he decries you for your sin. He's going to rejoice over you as the redeemed. And you're not going to be abandoned and left alone. You're going to be betrothed forever to Christ the head as the church, the bride, is united with him forever. So I think that's a neat comfort. The one who's repentant, trusting in the Lord of mercy and love, will never be put to shame, but will be honored, treasured, and will be delighted in. So if you know someone who's struggling with the, their guilt of their past, help them to see that picture. They're part of that newly clothed church. Uh, Paul brings out that picture in Ephesians 5 without wrinkle, stain, or blemish, but holy and blameless. And maybe you can even draw on the picture of baptism. That's part of the picture. You were clothed with Christ in baptism, and you have that righteousness now. Other thoughts on chapter 47? Okay, we're about at our time, so we'll pick it up with uh, chapter 48. We've looked at the rebuke for Babylon's idols, rebuke against proud Babylon itself, Next, the Lord's rebuke for rebellious Israel. In chapter 40, it's going to close out the, the section that we've been looking at, and we'll start a whole new focus starting on chapter 49 after that. But I got about two, maybe two weeks worth of study to get through 48. We'll see how it, how it tracks. Why don't we close with a prayer about what we looked at today? Lord, we recognize that in pride, Many nations have come before us and many nations have fallen. They've trusted in their immorality. They've trusted in their fortune tellers, their own wisdom, their own godless strength. But as John reveals in the book of Revelation, those are haunts for demons, a place where the devil carries out his work. We pray that you'll spare our nation in mercy and let your gospel spread that we might be a place where the truth is found. Help us not to become proud. And when, Lord, you judge all nations, remind us and help us to see that we will stand without shame, wrinkle, or blemish, but holy and blameless with the entire church, 
your new Jerusalem. Let this be our comfort and our strength, not our own pride, but our comfort and strength in you, the Redeemer, the I Am. Amen.